This morning we're going to be uh, tracking through a, a familiar, a sort of a familiar area of uh, Acts, I think. It's, it's often gone to because um, when, when churches need to do uh, a building campaign or giving is low, and um, completely coincidentally the budget meeting was last week, and uh, we just happened to be here. So, but um, guys, that's funny. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, so um, so here's the thing. It, it, it's gone to, and um, and we walk through it, and we say things like, "Wow, look, you know, look how the community came together, and how everybody's sharing everything. People are selling houses, and uh, if not, God will kill you." And that's Acts chapter five. And so there's the hard thing to sort out there. And so um, th- this morning, before we progress into the nature of um, why we're called to give and how. Uh, we're called to give, we need to sort out some of the framework and the groundwork that's necessary to be able to call people to generosity. And, um, and uh, so I, I don't know um, that I have like a great story or anything to make this uh, illustration work, but I, I, used to, um, I used to fix computers, I used to do like tech support, and uh, generally it was for um, older people. Because sometimes they're just not up on, on tech, and so maybe they bought like a new printer or something, and so they'd send me out, and I'd have to go in and figure out how to get it all connected to their computer and show them how to print and everything like that. And um, how many of you guys have ever had the experience where something is not working? And then, yeah, well, it's not the end of the story. Something's not working, and you, you, you seek some, some help, some customer service. Maybe you even took the time to call in and uh, try to get some help, and what's the first question they ask you? Is it plugged in, right? Is it plugged in? And uh, as much as we hate that question, it's the right question. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I would go and be like, nope, you've actually got to plug this thing in and plug it into your computer as well. They don't just, you know, know each other. And so um, we need to ask this morning, if you have a hard time with the idea of giving and generosity, um, you, you might be missing something before that. Does that make sense? You, you might be looking for something on the, on the back end that's really hard to muster, it's really hard to find because it's not plugged in. And um, so, so with that being said, um, in, in Luke chapter 7, this question of where, where does generosity come from? And Jesus answers this for us by way of, um, by way of a parable in a, in a unique situation. And so um, look, look with me, uh, and I'm going to start reading, yes, in uh, verse 36. And um, it says this, one of the Pharisees asked him, that him is Jesus, to eat with him. And so he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. But behold, a woman of the city, if you don't know what that means, she was a, a woman of ill repute. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table at a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with an ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, so the guy thought this, Jesus answers his thoughts, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Well, this is a pretty straightforward question and answer. Simon answered, 
the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, or she, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Where does generosity come from? Here it is. He who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, as we look to your word this morning, um, that you would teach us in this section of your word, of your scripture, to check what's necessary, to ask the hard questions and answer them honestly. God, I pray that um, you would speak your words and not mine this morning. Keep my lips and my ideas from air. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our, our spirits for your work by your word. Ask that you would do this for us because we are unable to do it ourselves. So God, by your spirit, give us ears to hear, eyes to behold, and hearts that are new and soft, led by you, that you would plant your truth in them, they would bear much fruit. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you can flip to Acts chapter 4. And um, I'll be reading, uh, starting in verse 23, and um, we don't have much left to do in this chapter, but did I say it? Yeah, that's right. Um, And I think I have the wrong verses up there. We're actually going to start in uh, verse 32, and we're going to read through... um, 37. So I apologize for the wrong, wrong reference there. But I think I have the right scriptures in there. Yep, there it is. Starting verse 32. Here we go. So uh, this is after they had prayed. The place where they were praying was shaken. They're filled with power. They're declaring God's word. And now here we go in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed, they were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, uh, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And we'll stop there. So um, I, I'm really only going to major in like verses uh, 32, 33, uh, because this is the uh, essential element to check, is it plugged in? So I see two things in this text that are necessary before you ask the question, why is it so hard for me to be generous? Okay? Because I, I think uh, that's, if we're, if we're super honest with ourselves, we don't count ourselves as a generous people. Uh, we made the distinction during the primer, since if you weren't here, you weren't privy to that, 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 that just giving is not generous. 
Just, just giving, everybody can muster something sometimes. Um, and generosity means uh, abundantly giving. It means giving something more and even measured out over and above what would be expected. That's generosity, right? And, um, and we, we uh, as humans, are, are not inclined to do that. Though, if you change some of the parameters about how you're looking at what you have, um, we might be a little more open-handed, but... but uh, all told, when we read something like Barnabas sold the, the field that he had and then he laid all the money, not just some of the money, at the apostles' feet to distribute to, his, to anyone as they had need, that's, a, that's pretty generous, right? That's, that's the essence of generosity. And so there's, there's two things in this text that I, I want to cover. And um, it's important and it will help us uh, determine whether or not uh, we have things in the right order. So the first is this. The first says, all who believed were of one heart and one soul. This is uh, an essential element of, of unity. This is, um, it's, it's saying more than it appears to say at face value. And it also says in verse 2 that, that great grace was upon them all. And so um, if you try to skip over these two necessary functions, you will inevitably struggle. If, if you have um, had the experience where you went to use something and it didn't work, right? And you called customer service, uh, and they asked you, was it plugged in? Before you went about all of that, how many of you are of the nature to say, let me take this thing apart and see if there's something inside of here that's broken? And I saw Christy look right at Kurt right away. Kurt, buddy, I'm the same way. I'm like, surely this didn't come out of the factory like this. I'll take it apart. So, um, the problem is we tend to want to crack open the thing like, it, like it's the problem when it usually isn't, right? And, and um, it, it usually starts somewhere um, more basic than that. And so um, this all stems from our experience of grace. And grace is a word that we, we toss around a lot. And we don't really pay mind to what it really is and what it really means and what it's really like to experience it. And um, so I, I want to say this this morning you'll know that you've truly experienced grace when it feels easy to abuse, but wrong to abuse it. Grace should seem so scandalously accessible and like so unwarranted that you're like, that feels like you shouldn't be offering that. Like, it's, it's not right. But at the same time, it feels so, so able to be abused, but at the same time, it's, it's so important and so valuable that you would never want to abuse it. And this is uh, an, important, uh, an important distinction, an important feeling that we should have. Um, so I want to I tease that out this morning, because the question that I'd have is, if you're going to ask, why am I not generous? I'd say, well, have you, really, have you really experienced grace? And you might say, well, yeah. Well, is it plugged in? Okay? So here we go. Look at uh, the first statement here in verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So there, there's some qualifiers here. It doesn't just say everybody that showed up to church was of one heart and one soul. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say they all got behind the great service project or the cool new logo or the building or whatever. It says those who believed, right? There's the first qualification. Those who believed, what? Well, importantly, the, those who believed the gospel, the word of who Jesus is and what he's done, those who believed then were united um, as, as one heart and one soul. So the difficult thing um, to hear this morning, but the most helpful and important thing that you need to know is, um, is you ought not to chase down some obscure, potentially wrong element 
while you miss the greater important thing, which is, have you believed the right thing? Have you grasped the right thing? Do you actually understand what grace is? And what I find is that um, as much as we, we espouse the idea of understanding grace and, and talk about it being free, we generally check whether or not we are believers by looking at the fruit in our lives. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, that um, belief does cause fruit in our lives, but um, being, being united to Christ is not a function of what you do. And that's a hard thing to accept because all, all, all we tend to do is create a new set of laws that uh, Christ freed us from. And, and so we tend to lay out a new set of parameters, a new set of moralities, and we say, well, am I doing this or am I doing that? Well, that tells me that I, I'm a believer and um, that, that's, uh, that's inaccurate. So the question of, of your belief is central to the belonging. Um, the, the idea that... Uh, you belong to the church because you attend here is, is backwards. Um, you attend here because you belong to the church. Okay? That is a, that's an important distinction. That If you reverse those, you see one is, one is legalism. One says, I come, I fulfill, I do, therefore I belong. And one says, I belong, therefore I come and I belong and I do. Okay? And, and so that's, um, that's an important distinction. One that we need to uh, work on a little bit more in, in the next week. But belief is the threshold of, of belonging. It's the threshold of belonging. And so everyone who believes belongs. Everyone who believes belongs. But everyone is converted. Nobody can look at the church. Nobody looks at the gospel. Nobody looks at Christ and says, he came to my side. Right? I, I was already in the know. I already understood you have been converted from what you were to what you are. That's, that's, um, that's not, a, that's not a, a, a statement to just go over. It's, it is the threshold by which you must pass to know whether or not you are on the right course. You are changed from an unbeliever to a believer. You are from belonging to the world to belonging to the church. From following the flesh to being led by the Spirit. So what happens is you were dead in your sins and your trespasses and you were following the power of the world and doing whatever it is that your soul and your flesh desired. You followed that and you did it. But then God's spirit breaks in by the word of God and does something very miraculous and important and it gives you something brand new. It changes you from what you were to what you are. And the old you is dead, gone, crucified with Christ, and the new you is alive and following and led by the Spirit. And that is just a paraphrase of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And for the sake of time, I won't read it all to you, but that's essentially the, the progression there. You were dead already. You were following your own heart, your own desires, your flesh. You gratified those, but then the Spirit of God breaks in, changes you, transforms you, gives you new life, and the old you is dead and the new you is alive. Grace transforms us, and this is an important reality. Grace transforms us from what we used to be to what we are now. And that is the important distinction of what happens in verse 32. The full number of those who believed were united. You can't expect to be united to other people if you don't um, understand and relate to and are um, committed at the same core value level and, and transformed at the same core value level as all the other people that are of one heart and one mind. And so, um, 
we, uh, we see that grace transforms us, but um, it does it in two ways. So grace transforms us both towards God and also towards other people. I said this last week, that the effect of um, what happens is that we just see that God enables people to then live out the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. It's not first and second. It is the greatest commandment with kind of two halves, but equally important. That's Jesus' summation, not mine. This is what the whole thing hangs on. Love God with everything you have and everything you are and show it by loving others. And, uh, and so that's it. Oh, I guess I didn't put up the other one. So toward God, toward others, and um, this can't happen on our own. It doesn't happen on our own. You can generate a little bit of zeal occasionally from time to time to do some good things towards God. You can try in your own effort but that's, it's, it's going to run out and it's going to get tiresome and you're going to get frustrated. And you can be nice to people from time to time, occasionally, when it fits you or when you're not in a bad mood. But the reality is that you need a new heart to perform any of this. And this is why it says those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That phrase there should hearken you back to any time you've heard the greatest command, one heart and one soul. Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The greatest commandment is focused on love. It, it says, do, do this by love and where our love is expressed. So the question should be, um, if I believed, has it resulted in the kind of love that I'm told is, is what believing means? So is your life orient, oriented around loving God with all that you have? And is your love towards others expressing that same reality? You must be radically changed to be part of people that are not like you and who you were not like before. And um, so I say you, you need a new heart to do this. Why do you need a new heart to do this? Because I, I first of all said, in the Ephesians passage, it says you were, you were walking following your flesh. But um, there are a myriad scriptures, but let me just run through a, a few to remind you the problem with not having a new heart. Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth or what goes into your body that defiles you, but what comes out of you. And what comes out of you is an overflow of what's in your heart. So, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, that's in Matthew chapter 15, 11. It is your heart that overflows, bubbles out, and that is what defiles you. In Matthew 15, 18, um, he says, uh, this all proceeds from the heart. Uh, in Matthew 12, 34, um, he says, uh, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good fruit, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Are you discerning a theme here? Your, 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 your mouth is just overflowing what's already in your heart, but um, at, a, at a fundamental core level, Jeremiah 8, 9 says it like this, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then he follows that with, I the Lord search the heart and the test the mind. So you, you, your, your natural disposition, your fundamental nature of your heart is one in which it's bent and wrong affected. You, you, you desire things that you ought not desire. You have no love for God. You have no love for others. And, and that doesn't mean that you hated everyone. It just means you did not express any kind of kindness and generosity and a, at an at a agape love level. 
So this has changed though. There's a promise that this would change. There's several scripture references. I want to give you Ezekiel 11, 17. It says this. Therefore, the Lord says, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered and I will give you a land in Israel. And when they come there, they will remove it from its detestable thing and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit and I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh and they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their, de- their evil deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord God. So in Ezekiel, you have him saying, um, you, you were dispersed because you were following evil ways. The Lord's going to bring you back and then he's going to give you a, a new heart and a new spirit so that you can walk in his statutes and his ways. And because of that, um, you, you, will, uh, you will follow him. You will be of his spirit. And then he says, but those who continue um, to, to be outside, to, to uh, walk in their own ways, will bring their own deeds upon their head. And so here it is. The fulfillment of that promise that God did give the Spirit to all the people. Look, we just read that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in verse um, 31. And now those who believed were of one heart and united in one soul. And the result of this was that um, no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Um, This is an extension of how we look at what it is that we have. Is is, um, what you possess what you walk in is a result of grace or do you see it as stuff that you've earned this is um i'm just going to plant that seed because we need we'll talk about that much more next week but it, it has to do with um the reality that god god has equated what happens to us spiritually in our hearts and our spirit with stuff spiritual becomes stuff and 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 how we work with the stuff of the world tells us a lot about what's in our hearts. So there's a connection between our stuff, our affections, and how we relate to God. So they, the full number of those who believed, hold everything in common. And this is an outworking of, of their being bonded and united. And um, don't mistake um, unity for uniformity. This doesn't say they all, they all like the same flavor of ice cream and rooted for the Broncos, and right? It doesn't mean they're, they're cookie-cutter copies and everybody's in agreement in entirety about everything. Um, it means there's unity around the main thing. It's, it's unity around the most essential thing. And um, this occurs to me, and I just want to share it. I don't know that it particularly fits in the flow of the sermon, but you, you have to remember that as this is recorded, and we kind of look at it and we go, that's really hard to do. How do we find unity around doctrine where we disagree on some interpretation there guys there was no there was no scripture it was the apostles teaching it was the gospel and that was the thing that united everyone there wasn't some further complications and so we we might sort of look at um, denominations and and things like that and splits and wonder well you know is it possible to achieve this and the reality is that I think it's, it's wanting us to focus on um, the essential nature of the gospel and not compromising on that. That is the essence of, of holding all things in common. And so because of this, because of what it does, because we all have a new heart and we're given the spirit, we share together something that doesn't belong to us. It's God's spirit. He said, I will put my spirit in you. It's, 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 it's something you, you um, 
have the benefit of, but it's not yours in, in the sense that you own it or you have generated it. And because of this, we're all bonded and united. And um, so Ephesians, the rest of, past verse 10 on through 11 through 18, talks about that there's neither Jew nor Greek, and we've all been united together in Christ. You should read that um, because it's... it's uh, it's something that we, we sort of skip over. We say, yeah, we agree on Jesus, and, th- and that's good enough. And so if you look at churches a lot of times, and you see factions and disunity, I point you again back to the reality that um, God never disagrees with himself. And so if we're, if we're being filled with the Spirit, and we're following um, God, and, and we um, hold the essentials tightly, and all the rest loosely then we will find ourselves having much more unity. But you show me a disunited people, a people that don't have love and don't practice love, I'll show you people who aren't really filled with the Spirit. And um, the common bond is Christ. The common bond is the reality of what Christ has done through the gospel. Here it is, verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's funny that... um, we see these people who've believed the word of God, they've, they've um, put their faith in Jesus, and it doesn't say, and then they advanced on to talking about which laws to obey, and which rules to follow. It comes back to the same declaration again and again and again. The apostles are giving the testimony about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and what that means for living life. And look, the, um, the next important piece is at the end of this verse, and it says... And great grace was upon them all. Great grace is um, the, the title of this sermon. Great grace is necessary. Great grace is necessary because um, there's great sin among a people. And so more and more and more grace is necessary. And so when Paul's talking about grace, he, he, he anticipates this objection about if, if, uh, if, if I sin and there's, there's grace there, but then I sin even more and there's more grace there. And it says, no matter how much I sin, there's more and more and more grace and grace just keeps abounding. And then we look at that and we go, well, then maybe I should sin even more so that grace might abound all the more. And then he forbids it, right? He says, but, but God forbid that that would be the case. And so I point you to the original statement about grace. Grace should feel so, so scandalous, so accessibly um, free that we are afraid to or seems really easy to abuse. But because we know the value of it, because you've actually experienced it, you would never dream of abusing it. And that's sort of the line of argument that, um, that Paul uses. And um, so the second description here that they had great grace is the reason and the means that they're able to display and manifest the kind of unity that we see that produces the kind of people who would willingly lay down all they have or what they have for the benefit of another person. So, great grace is necessary because great sin is present. And grace is, uh, we'll say it like this, the lubricant that allows sinful people to live in close proximity to one another. You, You need grace because... You, you need to receive it and you need to give it. Because a, a, a grace-soaked and drenched heart will exude grace and give grace whenever it's wrung out or squeezed. In 1 Peter 4.8, Peter exhorts the flock to, above all, keep loving one another 
earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And then he goes on to say, show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So if, if you missed the progression there, this is 1 Peter 4, 8, and 9, and 10, if you want to scribble it down. He's, he ends with a statement about grace, that we are stewards of the gift of grace, and he gives that as the foundation for the reason why we ought to keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We ought to love one another, show hospitality without grumbling, um, because each one of us has a varied gift, and we use it to serve one another as good steward of God's varied grace. So the grace is the thing that you received, and because of that, you love one another um, without thought of getting your own. And that's a generous heart. That's the distinction between giving and generosity. It's, it's not a question of what do I get out of this or what do I receive from this. It's just, it's, it's, it's uh, giving with no, no strings attached. In Jesus' um, parable that he tells um, to Simon, the Pharisee, because he's struggling with this woman who comes in and she's, She's weeping on his feet and she's drawing, you know, cleaning his feet with her hair and then she anoints him with this expensive oil. And so he tells the, the parable of the two, the two guys, right? The two, the two people that are in debt. And he, he makes a, a quick statement that we sort of gloss over and he says, but neither of them is able to pay. Neither being able to repay, the debtor then forgives both debts. And then he asks, Who, who's going to love more. And he says, well, I suppose the one who was given, forgiven the greater debt. And so we kind of think, well, what does that have to do with, with grace? Well, it has everything to do with grace. Because what Je the situation Jesus had walked into was um, hypocrisy on display, right? You have a, 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 a Pharisee who believed that he was right with God. He does nothing to show hospitality to Jesus. And then you have this woman who is a sinner and knows it. So you have a guy who's a sinner and doesn't know it, and we have a woman who's a sinner and knows it. And that's, that's the real picture that's being drawn in this parable. They're both debtors, and neither one of them could pay. The question is the recognition of uh, that, that, that uh, indebtedness and the value of what it is to be forgiven of that debt. And we lose sight of that quickly. Once we first come to hear the gospel that through Jesus our sins can be forgiven, hooray, hurrah, that we seem to move past that and forget the fact that we still are only included because we have sin and it's the necessity of our needing forgiveness that actually includes us in the church at all. And so we tend to minimize the fact that we were ever in debt, right? We sort of move past it, we kind of forget it and... Um, and we move on for it. And so when grace isn't something that you're desperate for, you take it for granted. When, when grace, if, if you have a debt on, on your life that's unpayable, you have no hope but to plead for forgiveness. If you have a smaller debt that you think you can manage, that maybe given enough time, right? I'll, I'll pay it off. I'll work it off. And we forget that it doesn't matter if we think it's big or little, you're, it's unpayable. Well, it's payable, but it's payable by death. And um, this is an important distinction. So we need to stop denying the reality as a church that we are the gathering, not of the good people, but of the saved people. Not, not of the best people, but of the people that are forgiven. The people who are willing to acknowledge sin 
in their lives and their total inability to fix that very condition. So 1 John 1.6 is what I want to spend the rest of our time going through. 1 John 1, 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him, if you say you know God, if you say you believe, if you say you know the gospel, if you say you have fellowship with him while you walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light and we have fellowship then with one another. So if we profess to know God, while we walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then he doesn't say, then we know God. He says, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If Jesus comes to your house and you say, don't you know this woman is a sinner? But don't recognize the problem in our own lives. Then the truth is not in you. And you don't know what grace is and you've never experienced it. Eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He forgives our sins and he cleanses us from unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in this. In this. Two times he emphasizes the reality that we, we must acknowledge that we, we don't we don't walk in perfection. It's an ongoing, present tense need that we recognize our, our inability and our absolute dependence on grace. If, then, it's an if-then statement. If you do this, then that. Implication being the reverse of that. If you do not do this, then it will not. If you do not confess, then your sins will not be forgiven and you do not walk in the light. But if we do, he is faithful it's a conditional statement and one that we often just assume that we have because we confessed one time. But confess is also in the present, indicative tense, meaning it's an ongoing thing. We must fulfill the basic condition of confession. And the confession isn't go to Mitch and tell him all the bad things that you did. It doesn't hurt you, but I'm not your priest. You must confess to God whom you sinned against. But you should confess to someone and acknowledge the reality of the situations. And you confess your sins, our sins. I think we have, um, we're, we think our spiritual gift is confessing other people's sins, right? We, it's real easy to identify other people's problems and help them drag out that confession, right? It's also easy to look at the proverbial out there and see how bad it is. Well, forgetting to look in, the, in here and see how cluttered and bad it can get. So if we confess our sins, he's faithful. You cannot confess the sins of others. And this is just my political soapbox for the day. There is a, a school of thought, a, an argument being made through cultural Marxism or whatever you want to call it, somehow you can confess the sins of your race and the sins of your ancestors. You must confess the sins that you've committed. You must confess the sins that you've particularly t- 
taking part in. Now, that doesn't mean you lack empathy, that you should disregard any way that you may have unknowingly participated in something, but do not buy the lie in CRT or whatever else is out there that tells you that you're guilty for being born a certain color. He is faithful to forgive. The forgive is also in an ongoing present tense because the confession is in the ongoing present tense, meaning it's an ongoing relationship that we hold. The implications being that sin will continue to happen. But the beauty of it is that it's promised that every time that we come back and we confess again and we acknowledge again, that he's faithful to respond. And that's the part of it that feels almost abusive, right? Where we go, how is it that again and again and again, it doesn't matter that you give more grace. And we go, and when we finally understand um, grace, and we truly understand the weight that's lifted off of us, we begin to desire not to, not to offend God's grace, and not to abuse it, and not to treat it so, so, so flippantly. It doesn't mean we walk in perfection, but it does mean that... Um, there's a transformation that happens when, when uh, we've been truly given a new heart because we've experienced grace. Jesus tells uh, another parable, um, or no, excuse me, in, in, uh, it's not a parable. This is a, a, a similar condition in uh, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And I want to show you this. So there was the time where Jesus was at the, the Pharisee's house and um, the woman comes and she anoints him. This is another time. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead and so they gave dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and she, it was made from pure nard. And he anointed, and, she, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was, into, what, uh, what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that you may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor um, you always will have with you, but you will not always have me with you. So we, we have um, t t two bookends of sort of the same event. And it's not, it's not the same event. Uh, the first time, it says he's, he's at uh, Simon's house, who's a Pharisee. And here, he's at the house of uh, Martha. And Lazarus is there. This is a total, and the same thing happens. But who's mad about generosity? Of, of all the people that are there, and all the people that know Jesus, there's one guy that's upset. Who's upset by grace? being given back. It's Judas. It's Judas. He's upset because this woman has um, been so gracious uh, to Jesus that she had this expensive ointment and she, she, uh, she anointed him with it and then he, 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 he feigns some kind of generosity and, and, a, and having a good heart. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? But he didn't say this because he cared about the poor. He doesn't care about the poor and he doesn't actually care about Jesus. He's the, he's the guy that didn't grasp what Jesus was actually doing. 
He's, he's the guy that betrays and, and um, is filled with Satan. So we have two distinctions. The woman that knows who Jesus is, knows that she's a sinner and what's poured forth from that, and then somebody from the outside who doesn't understand grace, doesn't um, grasp it, whose heart hasn't been transformed, and their response to it. So the question again, I, I want you to ask before you get to, is my giving generous, or do, am I motivated to sell my house? Because haven't, we haven't got there yet, right? Has entirely to do with whether or not you've really experienced grace. A heart given by grace. That's the new heart. Not the old heart of stone that God had to tear out and give you a new heart. A heart given by grace is transformed by grace. Which is a heart that bleeds grace. When, when you have had the experience of knowing your debt Forgiven, this is the kind of expression that you have towards your Lord and towards those who also belong to him. And so the question is not so much, why is it so hard for me to be generous? It's maybe you've lost sight of or forgotten or have moved past or minimized or in some other way have missed the boat on what it means to belong and to believe and to experience 2 Corinthians 8 calls us to prove that our love is genuine by giving, through giving. I say this not as a command. This is Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. And then he ties it to this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. The gospel is the story of the great exchange of, of grace. And it's, it's, it's laid out in, in, in the reality of riches and poor. You have a great debt. Jesus being rich, not materially, but that materially, because all the cow, cattle on a thousand hills belong to him, right? So he, he, he has all that he needs, and you have nothing that you need. He, he impoverishes himself so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the greatest expression of generosity that you could have. And coincidentally, not coincidentally, but by implication, also the greatest expression of love. Greater love has no one than that he would lay down his life for his brother, for his friend. So the gospel is a story of overwhelming generosity that transforms hearts to generous hearts. So this morning, I know maybe it feels like super basic. And uh, you're like, man, I, I, I wanted to get into something else. Before you unscrew the void warranty if stickers broken panel on the appliance and start rooting around on some of the other stuff in your life, check and see if it's plugged in. If you say, hey, I, 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 know, I've, I know that I've experienced, I know I've been transformed. Yeah, but is it turned on? Because if you look in your life and you're not living and giving generously, then it's not my words, it's, it's, it's scripture you have a problem with. That, that the implication will be that your life will exude grace. 
that generosity will be coming out of you. And I asked at the beginning if you think most people are generous, and the answer is not. But you should be able to look somewhere in your life and see the fruit of generosity in your heart. So we're going to go to prayer this morning, and then we will take communion together. But my encouragement for you is to go and rehearse 1 John, where he says, if, we're, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. So you need to do some, some work because I, I don't know what's in your heart and I don't know what's plugged in and what's not turned on and, and what's messed up, but you do. So we pray this morning, Father, as we come to you, that you, by your spirit, would um, search us, that you would try us, you'd see if there are any way in us where we've um, allowed iniquity to sit in our hearts and have forgotten to come to you for grace. Father, I pray that we'd go even, even deeper than that and that we'd ask ourselves if we've just believed superficial things about you rather than missing or, or, or missing the, the, the true nature of the gospel and the true nature of grace that you offer us.